Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a lie killer, urban gorilla. I gotta be a roughneck. Free the black panthers. FCBP. Stand for free the black panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coins, hell bro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black on black power moves. You tell a lie, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday, I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me, you can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free, okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the Black Police, Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles But we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro RBG, 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 RBG My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, that's really all I need We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny Foolish that don't tolerate it, melanated, so you gotta hate it Barack upped up another conversation, Trump finna get inaugurated, damn Unify or die, nbpp.org First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we are not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police department to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous service unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation. And so I think that this opportunity equipped provides us to come together as a collective. We need to build on it, keep the momentum going. 
and tie this to the international struggle and to the Pan-African Union, the Pan-African Congress that's coming up that Brother Superway uh, spoke about, all this needs to be plugged in together and come full circle. And we got right to on. organize the race. Free the land. Free the land by any means necessary. Black power, black power. Yes, sir. Thank you, Brother Luke Mon, representing the provisional government of the Republic of New Africa. Uh, thank you, brother. We also want to thank Brother Minister Abdul Halim. I think the screen is still being shared. Okay, he just backed out. Man, Brother Luke Mon, uh, don't worry. We will be doing this again on August the 19th. We had uh, so many uh, participants. We tried to fit, you know, uh, over 15 presenters in a 12-hour time period. It started off about 20. Uh, brother, uh, we had a couple of people to have uh, scheduled conflicts. Brother Ray Winbush, we'll see if we can get him back uh, online on the deck for August. Our brother Reginald Gordon, we want to keep our prayers up for him. He uh, was supposed to do a presentation in reference to the prison industrial complex, which is definitely something that we need to deal with. And Brother Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. Uh, is going to be speaking at a funeral today. So, but we have invited them to come back for the August demonstration. And there were several other people who wanted to present, and we just didn't have the time slot. So the next session of the teaching we'll do, we're going to get more into strategies and, and action points. Uh, unified action points that we can utilize in our different cities and coming up with some consensus as to what are some of the key points in the reparations movement that we want to make sure that everybody, you know, is saying simultaneously and continuous. We want to be able to put the reparations movement in the hands of everyday rank and file people, the everyday person, where they could be a part of it. You see, the brothers and sisters that are here presenting today are laying out the the one, two, threes as regards to reparations, the basics, and some and, and, and some even more elaborate um, overstanders in the historical perspectives. But, you know, but you can only sit around and listen to so many lectures, brothers and sisters, before you are, are, are called upon to get out there and hit the field. So it's time to hit the field. So without further ado, speaking of hit the field, we got Brother Jay Morrison coming up. Jay Morrison, the founder of the Tulsa Real Estate Fund. Black Power, hit your mute, brother. Let me see if it lets you come on by yourself. All right, Black Power, can we get a mic check? Black Power, Queen, peace. Peace, family. Peace, peace. I'm about to mute everybody right quick. I'm about to mute everybody. He's got a one-hour bill. This is not going to be a a, a, a a subject matter that we could just going to rush through. I met Brother Jay Morrison, believe it or not, on the battlefield, not in an economic uh, meeting, not in one of his street corner lectures about real estate or one of these big forums, you know, uh, with, with you know, all of these real estate investors. Brother Jay Morrison, we met him in Hemp Hill, Louisiana, when Brother Alfred Wright had been brutally lynched and, and uh, bodily mutated. Mute, his body had been, you know, they cut his neck, they pulled his teeth out. I mean, they just did some overkill on our brothers, Alpha Wright and Hemp Hill. And Jay, and Jay Morrison was out, you know, and Alpha Wright's sister had been at a real estate uh, event, and I believe it was, she told us, Vegas, when she met you, she heard about what happened to her brother, she came, and you came. 
And, you know, the young brother, he was talking about, you know, at the time I had, you know, transitioned from what he had been doing in his younger street ways. And he was wanted to teach the young people in the communities about real estate. And he would go and set up corners in the hood, set on a corner, and start talking about real estate and building wealth, you know. And he was just like, you know, I was like, yeah, Jay, we need to get these reparations. He was like, reparations, we need to get money. I'm like, yeah, we need money too, but but they owe us. I said, I'm not arguing with you that we don't need money. Don't worry, I'm not arguing on that. And you know, it was like we've been building and building and building, you know. And you know, the brother, he's a person. As he has been an entrepreneur, he's always been on the front line supporting the movement. He was in, we were in Baton Rouge for Alton Sterling. We looked up. Jay came in with a a, a van, a bus full of young young organizers. You know, so from I think at the time he was in New Jersey and Atlanta, and he had a vision of building this fund, this real estate fund, and it's taken off ever since. Our brother came under attack. You know, they got a lot of haters that see black people coming up and want to try to, you know, character assassinate. And I warned them about that. I say, Jay, the counterintelligence program was not just for the movement. You know, the majority of the people, when you look at those images of lynchings back in the day, those were black business owners. Hmm. You know, Tulsa, what happened with Tulsa? That was a black business district. Wilmington, South Carolina, black business district. You think the enemy doesn't target our black people who are going after entrepreneurship, not just the rappers? So we got to be be, be very protective of our brothers and sisters who get, get money or who are building on economic wealth, and they don't turn their back and run and be in the suburbs and don't want to deal with the black community. This brother is always on the front line, still supporting the movement, but showing ways of building wealth. So with that being said, how does it tie to reparations? Well, he's going to tell you. So, Jay Morrison, you have the floor. I'm going Thank on you, mute. Man. Black power. All right. Black power to everyone. Thank you all. I'm honored to, to be here and I, I definitely want to use some time for uh, for Q&A or for build. Um, I know everyone's been here all day. And um, what, I, what I'm most inspired by and what my spirit really uh, wanted to share is first I'll give a little background on myself. So right now I'm sitting in what's called the Black House, the Legacy Center. This is a, a 30,000-square-foot Class A commercial building that we purchased and developed uh, through, uh, four years ago. Here in East Point, Georgia, this is Atlanta, Georgia. I'm seven minutes from Atlanta International Airport, which is the world's busiest airport. We have a 2.6-acre campus, community garden on the side, and we host all types of Class A events. So um, the San Francisco reparations uh, study said that our communities need cultural centers. And that's exactly what we have here. Downstairs in, um, in this facility, although uh, we host uh, Nike, we've hosted uh, Atlanta Dream for their WNBA kickoff. We've hosted, uh, we're hosting Amazon um, in August, uh, Delta, Air France, and Fortune 100 and Fortune 500 companies we've hosted here, Georgia Power and uh, Southern Company and Chick-fil-A and others have been in our black-owned building. But when they walk in our building, um, one thing they see is in our lobby are 8,600 names of mostly black families and small businesses that all contributed to group economics and our real estate fund. And I'm going to talk about that kind of secondly. Um, 
Those are our 8,600 founding partners from the first 30 days of the launch of our fund. And altogether, we have over 15,000 partners from 22 countries in this one real estate fund, the largest black-owned real estate crowd fund in history um, with 11.5 million raised uh, with with those 15,000 families and small businesses. Um, So second thing they see when they come through our doors is they see the O.W. Gurley Conference Room. We have an executive conference room named after O.W. Gurley, the founder of Black Wall Street of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, and they see the devastation. They see the uh, – we have a picture of the brilliance of Black Wall Street at its zenith and a picture of the devastation during our bombing and massacre. Um, but also on all our walls, our ancestors, our heroes, our contributors to our movement, from um, uh, Huey P. Newton to uh, Muhammad Ali to Honorable Elijah Muhammad to Minister Farrakhan to – uh, Maynard Jackson to uh, Trayvon Martin's on our walls, uh, Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X, MLK. They're all historical figures all throughout our building. So uh, we give everyone a Ritz-Carlton-like Class A commercial venue, but dipped in our culture and dipped in our movement. And uh, Fortune, again, 500 and 100 companies lease our space all the time, and they commend us on such a pristine building but also we serve our community here as well. We've done everything from food drives for uh, local community, back-to-school drives, book-back drives, haircut drives, uh, uh, ATL for Haiti. We gave away tons of goods uh, to Haiti during the last earthquake, um, as well as we went to the, to the border in Texas during that time as well. Message to Crystal down there too. Um, and we host a mentorship program for, for, for what they call Boys and Young Men of Color, for our black boys, it's called Big Brothers Anonymous. It's a foundation, it's a, it's a, a Saturday mentorship that I founded, um, inspired by a Saturday mentorship that got me, um, that planned the seed anyway to get me out of the streets. Um, when I was 22 years old, uh, I was a high school dropout, three-time felon, who had served two and a half years in prison. And a mentor uh, in Plainfield, New Jersey, during a Saturday men's group, he gave me a, a, a business card and referred me to a mortgage company to get my first corporate job. And uh, I got hired by a mortgage company making commissions and saw the money that could be made in real estate and how you could fix your credit and these things. And those were the seeds that, that got me into real estate full time by 25 years old and put me on trajectory to be the fund manager, now the, uh, the largest black uh, real estate crowd fund in history. Um, so I do that same thing. I give back to a men- mentorship program. It's partnered with the Obama Foundation, et cetera. So we have all these different... Uh, accolades, if you will, uh, from our building that I'm sitting in right now and what we do, it's the same kind of building that the reparation study in San Francisco said we needed was cultural centers. So we connect to the community, but we also fund the building through our events model and revenue, uh, generating model through events, venue, and media production, et cetera. Um, but what I learned is mostly what I want to share with you all. So that's some backdrop on me here as a founder, a co-founder of this building, my wife and founder of the fund. Um, 20 years in real estate, and I've done a lot of high-level things as a, as a CEO. Um, but my heart has genuinely been – I've really been called to our people since 2012, and I met Sister Crystal in about 2015, and I wasn't aware of our uh, political oppression um, or uh, – yeah. Um, but I knew about our economic exploitation, as Malcolm called it, and I knew about our social degradation, and so I changed part of my own ways and habits to try to uplift us. But the biggest thing that I found when I went to Mississippi with Sister Crystal and I met with uh, Baba Joe, Joseph Epps, and Baba Kamal, 
I'm from NCOBRA and other elders and leaders. I was very green, very naive, very wet behind the ears in regards to the movement, um, but had all the young passion and vigor that most of us have when we, you know, first kind of get indoctrinated. Um, but it left me with two things when I left in 2015. One, um, Baba Kamal told me that you've got to build allies. You've got to connect everybody. And one thing that Baba Joe was saying heavily was uh, he was tired. He said, I'm tired of fighting this fight. And he said, uh, we keep pushing to get reparations and these different things, um, but we don't control our own water, and we don't control our own land, and we don't control how they feed us. And so I was just connecting those through my journey. Um, and so right now, outside of, you know, we, we've not only acquired this asset, we've literally transacted over 32 real estate deals in the last uh, five years uh, with, with 12 black developers in 10 different uh, states. Uh, Sister Crystal was part of a couple of transactions as well. Um, so we've been funding black developers. We've deployed over 9.4 million. We've created over 200 jobs. Uh, we did all these things for this fund. But what I want to kind of give us when it comes to reparations and my, my experience is this fund for me was not about a real estate fund. It never was about a real estate fund. It was about like when we say build a black Wall Street or group economics or reparations, like a massive or, or, or nationality, building our own nation, right, which is liberation. That's my goal. If, if I could turn my camera around, you'll see right here on our lawn is not uh, it's the Pan-African flag flies on our lawn. Every day, no matter what corporation comes here, Nike, Amazon, whomever, they come here under the under the under the Pan African flag. Um, and so I so kind of piece together my thoughts. The biggest piece I want to leave our, our group is I've seen the challenges of trying to unify us. Um, as I've sat with many celebrities, influencers, activists, political leaders, and everyone. It's hard to unify us when it's not your idea. Um, so many of us have our own original ideas. It's very hard to, to, to organize around somebody else's idea or somebody else's blueprint, somebody else's strategy, somebody else's plan to how we get liberated. So um, organizing, I think the brother who came on before me kind of said this, but like organizing the organizers is one of the hardest parts to where I believe we achieve the level of movement that we want. Um, in our fund, so think about it like this. Forget it that fact it's a real estate fund. I just want to talk about nationality right now and, and, and just nation building. So we were able to partner with mainly just me leading as a voice, and I did have other, obviously, allies and comrades and people that did support. Um, but it was hard for me to get buy-in for anyone to actually come and dig their feet in, dig their heels in, um, a substantial influence and say, let's do this together. Uh, I got people that, you know, post it when it went viral on social media and different things. But when it comes to, like, self-governing and really being the responsible party and the fiduciary and being the one that will accept all the darts and all the challenges, um, I found that it was very hard to get many of our more influential uh, and notable people to be involved with something that, again, wasn't something that they birthed. It wasn't their idea, even though it was good for their people. So that's like a hurdle I know we have to get past, and I'm working on even our next fund and continuation of our movement. But what I did learn that I'm really excited about, that I'm excited to be here to share with the group, is think about this. 
through social media, through marketing, through mass communications, we were able to, without a big alliance, we were able to organize 15,000 black families from 22 countries, not to donate, but to all have equity, have interest, vested interest in a company together and raise $11.5 million, which is we're thankful and we're blessed and we acknowledge and have gratitude to the Most High for us even accomplishing that. But it's also sad that that's the highest amount of capital ever raised through equitable group economics in the history of us being in this country. That 15,000 when there's millions of us. So the cool part is that with the proper alliances, the proper strategy, we've already proven through what we call my fund, our fund, a beta test. We've already proven that our people are willing to take action. Our people are willing to put their money where their mouth is. Our people are willing to unite. Um, we did get investigated by the SEC, Security and Exchange Commission. Uh, we did get investigated by the FBI, Department of Justice, uh, for 18 months and spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees, um, but those were all found with no findings. Uh, there's been no corruption. But my point is there will be challenges as we do it, but we have a real opportunity to all the great minds and, and leaders and elders and others on this line is that I'm new to the movement. I'm just like 10 years in to the movement. Um, with all of the, 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 the political, the brand, the community equity that we have in groups like this and others, um, when we talk about sustaining ourselves and self-sustainability and self-governing, um, a government has to be funded. It needs resources. It needs fuel. You need fuel for your agriculture department. You need fuel for your educational department. You need fuel for your health department. You need fuel for your military department, self-defense department. Right? You need capital. Every government runs off capital. And there's been a lacking thing in our community. And I just, only thing I really can contribute to this of any kind of real value to the leadership body here is that we have figured out in a compliant and transparent way, although I went through hell and hot water and fire for it, and my wife went through drama and trauma for it, and our family did and got called all kind of names and everything else, that, but it's a small sacrifice compared to what many of you all have all been through in the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and many of our leaders who are still uh, political prisoners and those who lost their lives. I have no problem losing a piece of my reputation for our movement and for our freedom when it's those who gave their life for it. I learned that. And then what God showed me is that if you can't deal with social media, you can't deal with nations. And so if we can't get past social media attacks and slander and defamation, um, if we're not prepared for that, then we're not prepared for nationhood. And so uh, that re re reignited me and reinvigorated me and really made me double down on the movement because no one's going to shame me or harass me out of, fighting for and serving my people. But I just want to contend to us uh, or lay to us that there truly is proof and evidence that not only can we unite around a ballot or a piece of paper or a signature, that we can literally unite economically, and we already have a proven structure that's done so. We're now five years in. Uh, we'll have our fourth audit complete. Uh, four years of audits independently by third-party auditors with no irregularities, no corruption, right? So we figured out the system to do it transparently, and even though people will slander and, uh, you know, misdirect and do what they do, 
Um, we can show through evidence and receipts and paperwork how, you know, functional we are. But I'm saying that's an opportunity that I believe that we all have in regards to this fight for reparations, liberation, and nationhood is um, there's some uh, marketing strategies, communication strategies, and some uh, execution points that I think if – I don't know how it's done. I'm, I'm, not that, uh, you know, I'm not that bright. I haven't been granted that revelation yet. But if we can literally, like this, is a great start, but somehow organize the organizers around real action steps that have real meat sink our teeth into to get to a desired end game that we're reverse engineering, you know, to, um, I've just seen that we can accomplish some seemingly impossible things. Um, Because I don't see why if, we can raise five years ago, 11.5 million, uh, when I was a newcomer into the movement, um, in a small brand essentially compared to all the big brands that are out there. Um, why we can't, uh, with 15, 15,000 families, why we can't with 115,000 families, uh, raise, you know, 100 million. And what does that do for our legal positioning, right? Uh, our resources for a legal team and resources for the proper defense and resources for the proper curriculum and resources for proper self-governing that we want to put in place, resources for the tribunal, resources for the plebiscite, resources for the traveling, right, all that kind of thing. So I just think that there's a way to, from an infrastructure, infrastructure standpoint, support us in a sophisticated and transparent enough way where we can put out a master plan for reparations and liberation and allow our people to invest in it, um, but have all the controls and all the transparency points they need, because that's one of the biggest things that we, 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 we fear is, you know, leadership corruption. Like, what happens when I give this Negro some millions of dollars, they're going to do the right thing with it. And so that's one of the things that we've been able to prove in our tenure is, like, there's been no theft, no corruption, no misappropriation, and full transparency. And I just think that if we can take and duplicate some of those models with the genius that we have here in this kind of body and the reach that uh, and, 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 and brand equity that, that many of you guys have and also our allies have outside of this call, um, I just don't see why we can't thoughtfully put together a sophisticated enough and intentional enough plan to literally, you know, fund our liberation or beginnings of it, fund our movement, um, and just get the action. Uh, in 2015, I thought of this idea for the fund during a panel after the Freddie Gray uprising in Baltimore. And everyone, I was on a panel, like we all on panels all the time. And on the panel, one of the residents in Baltimore said, we need to build a Black Wall Street, yo. And I said, well, if you want to build a Black Wall Street and you want to do something economic that's on my watch, I'll raise my hand. I said, I'll put some work in. And that's when I started researching how do you raise capital, right? from the crowd, non-accredited investors, as well as accredited investors. In 2016, we formed, formed a company. I went through the SEC filing for two years. I filed with the SEC. We got qualified in 2018, and we were qualified and we raised. So I'm just saying that that was a three-year vision and a lot of follow-up and work and applications and paperwork and all that to get the execution and manifestation. And that just made me a believer and all that we could do. 
because it wasn't pie in the sky. It wasn't like theoretic. It wasn't a tweet. It wasn't a hashtag. It wasn't like just on a panel. We actually put in the work. And I and I just truly believe that um, we all have the same opportunity. And I'm willing to contribute whatever I can contribute from my experiences and the team we built and whatever to lend to the movement. But I'm just like all of you all. I know we all tired of talking. We all tired of talking. We all tired of panels. We all tired of – I know many of you elders who got quadruple our years in the movement are, are tired of talking. And so I'm just here for whatever we can put more rubber to the road, more execution, um, I only give my resume to say, like, I'm about action. I'm about manifesting big things. I believe in big things. I believe in our liberation. I believe I'll see it in my lifetime, in our lifetime. I don't believe it's, like, three generations from now. I believe it's just us um, putting a plan in motion, putting a, putting a dart on the board, and just driving to it, um, just driving to it. And the excuses don't really matter. Um, again, I have no college education. I was a high school dropout. I was alternative youth. I got three felonies, um, all that, and um, you know was still able to accomplish something significant financially within our community. And so that just makes me believe in all of our potential and, and all of our gifts. And I know the spirit of uh, Marcus Garvey, many of our ancestors are are here and amongst us, and and, and also contributing towards um, me and our vision. But um. That's mostly it, really. I mean, I understand there's many plans out there. There's some that I like more than others. Some that we all like more than others. I don't know uh, how we get to a unified plan and consensus. I think it's probably one of the first things we need to do is really have our own internal plebiscite, our, our internal vote to get to a agreed-upon plan. And I think having enough emotional intelligence as a people to say, hey, if I contribute my plan and we all vote on the best plan, and my plan doesn't win, to have enough emotional intelligence to, to, to agree with the winning plan and put as much effort into it as you would your own. Um, I think we have to have some kind of an internal go- – we can't externally govern and have self-governance governance, or create our own governments as we have. We can't do it externally if we can't do it internally. If we can't function in a fluid and efficient internal governing of ourselves and our ideas and our plan forward – there's no way to have a true, um, strong, and efficient self-governing body. So, um, again, I'm just here more to where I can lend my gifts. We'll obviously, open for ideas. I just want to share my experiences. But I think more so, hopefully, uh, invigorate or reignite in anyone just the ideas that this is for us. We can do it now. We can do it in this generation. Um, I'm certainly here to support. And... Um, you know, I believe in the in, in, in the power of our people and the power of our focus and the power of our intentionality. And so um, I'll open up for, I guess, any questions or answers. That's okay with Consistent Crystal or however she may want to build on it. But, um, you know, I, I, I do know, I think we all know, that when we execute big visions like this, there's a cost. There's a cost to it. And not a financial right. cost so much as it is a, it's a cost of freedom. And um, I've, I've learned that. And that's one of, my, one of my biggest takeaways is I always thought that by launching a fund and practicing group economics at this level, I always was watching for the white supremacists. I, I was waiting for them. I got sucker punched by our own people. I never expected that the disruption, the hate, the the uh, dysfunction would come so fast and so vast and so internally. 
Um, so I wasn't looking for us. I was looking for us to support, and we had much support, obviously. But then there was just a whole sector of our people that decided to be naysayers and skeptics and to, to, to build their own platforms off that. And, um, but that's okay, though. And as we go for liberation, it's going to be the same thing. So it's like, all right, cool. They, they don't keep running their same playbooks, and we just got to keep running a stronger playbook towards uh, consistency and liberation. And so um, that's the cost of freedom. And as long as we're willing to pay it and be intentional, I believe we can have everything that we aspire to. That's right, Black Power. So, brother, uh, we did, We still have another how many minutes, brother, timekeeper? 30 minutes. 30 minutes. So what we'll do is we'll, uh, again, we'll open up for our brothers and sisters in the chat to uh, come into the conversation. Um, I see we got brothers. Let's start with brother Eugene Talford. And we, yeah, also, yeah. we also have brother uh, Haleem. Uh, I'm sorry, brother Lukeman again. Oh, we got a few people. We got brother... Jim okay. All right, Brother Jay Morrison, you got everybody fired up. We also want to ask some of you brothers and sisters who've not said anything. This this platform is open. But let's go with Eugene, Lukeman, uh, Jim okay, and then uh, if anyone else comes on, we're still in the time frame. We'll bring you on after uh, Brother Jay's uh, bill. We're going to be coming in with Baba Jane Smalls. So go ahead. Uh, let's see, Brother Eugene. Black Power. Yes, man. Yeah, Black Power. Yeah, Brother Jay, man, you was hitting it right on the head right there, brother. And, yeah, you know, a lot of folks don't know there were many Black Wall Streets all around this country that was destroyed uh, during and before uh, the Jim Crow era. And certainly we are a new breed leader, African generation, which is carving out the narrative of which we are in place. And, you know, it. With your, with your words, when you were speaking about the amount of money that, uh, uh, that we can contri- contribute here in this nation, you look at African American community by itself is 45, almost 45 million people all together. And we have a GDP of around $3.1 million, something like that. And 30% of that goes towards uh, taxation. So mm-hmm. when you look at the Oscars trillion dollars, of, you mean trillion? Trillion. That's right, trillion dollars. So you look at the Oscars of taxation without representation. That means these folks have been collecting taxes from us for uh, uh, almost two centuries now. And when it comes to us as African people, African Americans uh, wanting to get something out of that, uh, we get nothing. And when you talk about gentrification. Uh, neighborhoods, our black neighborhoods are being gentrified. They're moving in, buying out the older black group and, uh, a, a lot of the properties and things of that nature come from them being able to go to, uh, the banks and say, and, and, uh, and levy themselves with, uh, in, uh, revenue bonds. And this is how they're able to buy uh, a large land and properties, uh, and having it financed through industrial, industrial revenue bonds or, uh, real estate bonds, uh, uh, raising funds to bond, uh, administration, whether it's municipal or, or, or just a standard bond. Uh, these are our tax monies. And that tax money goes directly out of pocket into the pockets of Babylonians. Uh, and which also utilizes that from a local level to uh, destroy the black community. And especially when you talk about law enforcement uh, attacks 
and you using that that's supposed to be protection money that goes towards us. That money used for used to kill us. Uh, no man, that that does not add up. And with the uh, recent inflation, uh, how the banks are increasingly raising uh, uh, interest rates and things of that nature, and the banks are discriminating against us with the amount of money that we contribute to this nation. And I'm not just saying not here in the United States alone. I'm talking about everywhere where black people live at. Uh, we're being taken advantage of. But I, I do believe, as we are the new breed leader African generation, the same games that they played on us with our ancestors, our parents, and our grandparents, we're at a pinnacle now where we are a generation to make that stop. And we have to demand what we want. We have to unite together. And we also have to come together as a collective to get things done. Uh, That's right, Black Power. We're certainly in an age of the African Industrial Revolution, so that is also a part of our reparations. When we're talking about discussions about reparations and where we're going with this, we have an extraordinary opportunity to get into Africa and really build on a much more dynamic level than what, we, than what our ancestors have been given. But we stick to the models of what our ancestors have laid out for us, like the Honorable, Dark, uh, Honorable Marcus Garvey and uh, the the blueprints of Elijah Muhammad, uh, and which Brother Muhammad was just telling us about, but also the blueprints of the, the uh, new Black Panther, the Black Panthers, the 10-point step program to put ourselves on point with what we need to elevate sure. ourselves to a higher level. And these things are very important, and we must pass these things down to the younger generation that is behind us. We're also uh, at that age where we're in the chair in the seats of uh, – really making things happen. Uh, we're in the ages between 40, 50, 60 years old, 70 years old. Uh, most of the baby boomers are retiring now. So that means that we're in position uh, to take charge and we must lead with uh, a strong leadership platform. And yeah, it doesn't matter how many organizations that are out there, how many platforms, how many nonprofits, how many those who are in business, black owned, uh, the point of coming together as a collective to make things happen. I think that time is on our watch. So black power right. to you, brother Jay, and, and peace and blessings to you and your family. Uh, right, yeah, man. we got some folks out there in, uh, at, uh, out there in Oklahoma right now. Just came out, uh, last week, uh, to visit, uh, Black Wall Street. And, uh, certainly if, if you're not busy before they leave, before the week is out, uh, I'm going to have them reach out to you and connect with you, brother. Peace and love. Peace and love. Black Power, Black Power. Yes, sir, Brother Eugene. Who else do we have here? Brother Land. Brother Land. Go ahead, Brother Brother Lukman. Brother Land, Brother uh, Jay Moss. Brother Land, all of it. I first uh, seen you back in an old YouTube video talking about why I'm a new African. <laughs> mm-hmm. And doing the Declaration of Independence, I still use them to recruit today, huh? The powerful video, brother. I thank you for contributing to the struggle. And uh, all that before you did the uh, Tulsa Fund. And I appreciate that. Uh, I was trying to uh, reach out to you a couple of weeks ago, trying to bring uh, some uh, cooperative drama economics here in South Carolina. Okay. Uh, uh, I don't know if you've got... You, I, if I can give you my number, can you write it down and, and get back with me? I'll text it. I'll text it to him. I'll text it to him. Okay, that's for security reasons. We don't uh, want you because this video is going up live. 
Um, so we don't okay. we put you. That's what's up. But I, I'll text it to Jay. Next thing I want to say is this, man. Uh, your key issue about organizing the organizer. That's the conversation me, Brother Superway, and Cliff, and a couple of other brothers been having over at the uh, Permanent Forum for African uh, Descent in Pan-African Congress 8 at the international level. Because when uh, the international community come in, we need to know who is representing Africans in America. And in order for us to do that, we have to be organized over here at the national level. And we haven't been. And one thing I, I used to use the phrase about we having a bunch of chiefs and they tribes and none of them want to come together. And uh, one of the conversations, one of the proposals that were put forward was a pan African, I mean a a, 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 a a national black parliament with reserved uh, super delicate statuses for certain very high and influential organizations and, and certain individuals that have a lot of power and influence in the black community. Mm-hmm. And that's a way to get them to buy into a democratic process. But it's also elect- election from the mass at the bottom. But that's the conversation me and you can have. And uh, we can, I can, if you want to, we can include you and in, you can be included with the other conversation already takes place. Uh, another thing you mentioned is, uh, I think that was it. Those three things were the things that jumped out at me. And I appreciate you, brother, for your contribution. And, uh, Hopefully you can uh, be a part of the election process to the Republic of New Africa this year. <laughs> we think we have a we have a lot of we do we got a lot of uh, uh, talent and brains in to, to, that can participate in the self governance that yeah. we have or that we're experimenting experimenting with. You know, you know what, brother? I want to build with you on something you brought up. So this book right here, family, is a book I wrote called The Solution. How Africans, uh, how Africans in America achieve unity, justice, and repair, and it's an antidote to Malcolm X's "the ballot or the bullet" line, where he says we suffer from political oppression, economic exploitation, and social degradation. And so I was trying to like, this is just me. I'm a baby, y'all. So I, I, I always preference that because you know I honor my elders and I honor those who are putting way more work than me. So it's not me being a know-it-all. <laughs> But I, but I wanted to contribute. What's that? The thing is, a lot of people don't drop the plays, the master plan. So the key is we're trying to organize the race. Now go ahead. Yes, sir. So I have put this down. I'm just like, I'm like a like a reason why I'm effective as a teacher and an educator, and why even while I was able to do the fun because I make everything plain so my 17 year old self can understand it. That's how I just process things. Like I just I gotta break things down all the way because that's just how, that's, that's really my genius is that I'm not that smart, so i got to make things simpler for me to understand them. And so when I was looking at our movement, and I wrote out this thing called a Black Vote Day, and it essentially was the organizing the organizers a day, right? And, and, I, and I talked to Sister Crystal about it for years now, and we talked about leasing out the United Nations. It was like $11,000, $13,000 to lease the United Nations building or to lease out some place. But now we have our own space. we got our own black house to do it. But this is what it looked like. And uh, I thought about, um, you know, Baba Jane Smalls and, and so many others here and other great people that have been contributing. But anyway, I said, what if we organize the top 100 influential people in our community, right, to have this Democratic Congress, if you will? And 
I put 13 religious leaders, 12 business leaders, 25 entertainers and athletes, and 50 social and political activists. So these would be like the groups, right, of these 100 people. So 50 political activists, 25 entertainers slash athletes because of their just position and culture, 12 business leaders, and 13 religious leaders. That would make them 100 people in categories that would be part of this Democratic vote, right? And said, so what if we they all got together, and, and in the voting power, it was the religious leaders, the business leaders, the entertainers, and the athletes, they got 33% of the vote delegation, right? And then the social activist political leaders, they got 33% of the vote. Because although they may not be as popular, they obviously are more connected to the movement and have done the work, right? And then I put 34% would go to the general public for a collective vote. So you would have these leadership bodies vote and represent 33% of a collective vote of the ones I mentioned. The political leaders would represent 33% of the vote and have that much wealth or uh, 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 representation. And then we'd have an online vote documented through the proper, you know, blockchain or whatever else with people's, uh, you know, IDs or whatever to have an online public vote that would then allow us to uh, choose what master plan or what nationality or what office or flag that we fly under in regards to liberation. Um, this ain't got to be it. But my point is, if we don't come up with something that's a structure for us to be able to govern and move forward, it will be 2028 and we'll still be on the Zoom panels just like this until there's some kind of actual structure that we say, all right, it's good enough. Let's pick some plans. Everybody present their plans like, like, like a debate. And then allow the masses or the leadership body and or to vote, adopt, and go. If we don't ever adopt something collectively, we never can just go. And that's what I'm trying to say with the Tulsa Fund. I presented this in Harlem at Sylvia's to a bunch of political leaders and entertainers. I presented this privately to household name rappers that you know, global names. I presented privately to activists. And I couldn't get the buy-in that for people just to go, so I just did it. And I did it to my small little incremental level of doing it, but I just couldn't sit on the vision and sit on the opportunity. And I think that's what's happening with us is that well, we're just not getting something agreed upon enough as a unit that we can just go and execute. We, we, we stay in conversation and planning and pre-planning and post-planning, and we can't execute because of that inability to Decide. But once we get that critical mass, once we get that critical mass, you'll see the buy-in change. So and, now, okay, and in, addition, in addition to that, how do we do that? In addition to that, that's that, wait a minute, I want to just, just jump on in here because that's part of what this is about that we're doing right now with this teaching, in, which I've said all through it from the beginning, you know, we're going to do this again on the 19th. You know, we're building on, on August the 19th, that is, doing a uh, Marcus Garvey event. You know, uh, actually, this the first one we were uh, intending on doing, we were going to hold at the Black House. Was Jay opened up the, fo the floor for us to do it in person. And then logistically, you know, a lot of stuff was going on. We decided to do it for Juneteenth, do it virtually, and then, you know, to do a, 
this this collective right here is, is more so like a, a political education, an overview of reparations. And we said the next uh, convening that we do, we want to get more into strategy, you know what I'm saying? And then the next one is to be into action point. And as we're talking about strategies, I mean, we're coming up with collective strategies, and from those strategy points, we agree on which ones we're going to move forward with and, and put it together in the perspective where the everyday person can take this same campaign and run with it. For instance, say we collectively said that every city and state would do like California, and every city would convene a, a, a task force, a local task force for reparations. And, the, and, and if we have a unified set of demand, and all folks have to do is plug in their city, a plug in their state, and then we take a petition drive to get these on the agenda by referendum for people to vote them in their cities or states, but to come up with a unified action plan, and that's, that's all we talk about, and everybody, do, it doesn't matter if it's a little kid that's four-year-old or somebody that's 84, these are all the same talking points that we agree upon. So you said a reparations plebiscite. Uh, not just a plebiscite. I'm saying action no, plan. I said, I'm, I'm talking, I said a, a reparations plebiscite. I said, I said not just. I said not just a reparations plebiscite. I'm talking about okay. in addition to not just a plebiscite. I'm talking about actual working things, petition drives that will be going on city by city to get reparations on the local agenda in their city, state agendas in their cities, you know, leading up to federal whatever, but action plans that people can do, rank and file everyday people, you know. Well, I think and, 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 you know, there can most definitely be the convening of plebiscite, you know, but I'm talking about, well, we get, just like how in the 60s and 70s, or 60s, I would say, the, the, the concept of civil rights movement, you know, everybody's speaking on, you know, the people who all our parents and grandparents were, quote, unquote, fighting for civil rights or equal rights. Reparations is something that we need to make practical to the ranking everyday people where they're talking about it and addressing it just like they're talking about Trump every day. But having a, a, a part in it like seeing themselves a part in it. And if we go ahead and, and take the time to, to do the grunt work, you know, okay, I know we I know we having these meetings, but look, McKenna, really, I'm about, seriously, because I let everybody go, you know, get, let me finish my point without getting my, my bill getting cut, you know. We have a lot of uh, brothers and sisters who can lay out strategies, but what I'm saying is, we need to come up with a unified strategy. We make it practical. Even if it's, you know, uh, a 10 objectives that we must get 10 demands for reparations. And every city is asking for these same 10 demands. Like right now, California, I think they negotiated or saying right now, went down from 5 million to 1.5 million per black adult. It's part of their reparation petition or plan package that they have now and, other, and certain policies. Well, we might not settle on 1.5 million. We might decide when we do our next convenings, you know, of the 100 heads or whatever, we want 5 million, especially in the states where they had slavery. We want a block of land, X, Y, Z. And we can look at it from a, what, what in, this, in, a, in, a, in a municipal capacity. 
by going by a referendum to get it on the ballot for the people to vote it on in your city. So if you're in Houston, if you're in Dallas, you're in San Antonio, you're in Newark, Chicago, we got the same demands, but we're just plugging in our city for it. And to get it on the ballot for the people to vote for it per city, to get something on the agenda on the ballot for the people to vote for, you have to have a petition of the registered voter, a certain number of registered voters do a petition and say, we want this on the ballot. That And if people vote for it, that becomes law. The city can't, can't overturn it. I've seen here in Houston, we saw here in Houston, where the city put out a, or, put out a, a, a ordinance that they were going to have red light cameras all over the city. A group of people got together, organized a petition, and put it on the ballot the people voted for by referendum, and they had to come down. Even though the city of Houston had a $26 million commitment, it was overturned because referendum is more powerful and has more precedent than the city ordinance because that's a true vote for the people. Though we can do the same way, same thing statewide. Or if you want to use the model of California, they had a group of people, a task force of maybe 12, I don't know the exact number, they, they, they got a certain amount of money. They worked with the Department of Justice, but they had a governor and, and other people politically who were more apt, you know, to more con, uh, open to bring this to the, to the forefront. I don't see us having the governor of, of Texas doing that. But here in Houston, we, we have a black stronghold. We could definitely get it done locally. So we need to be look, thinking of strategies locally, statewide, and collectively of how to get the everyday people involved. And we're going to have to have some type of economic capacity to make any of this happen because there's not been one movement or one action that we had to do that didn't require us to, 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 to cost us money. Whenever somebody gets killed by the police and we do mobilizations and we go out, even just taking a group of, of Black Panthers in our own region, it costs us $1,000 just to move to go to a demonstration, volunteer. That money comes out of our pocket or done donations from somebody here or there. You know, we're, you know, we're doing this, this uh, reparations uh, piece here for the, you know, comfortably from our homes in front of a computer, but that's not how it is the most of the time. We leave our homes to go deal with a tragedy. I mean, we met brother. I saw brother Jay. Brother Jay was up there for Freddie Gray with brother Sharif, for for uh, brother Sharif when Freddie Gray was murdered. Brother Jay was down there with us in Mississippi when when oldest uh, bird was lynched. These are mobilizations. We had to hit the ground, pull our own monies together. And the last time I just saw Jay, he mentioned it earlier. We were, we were at the border in Texas when the crackers had the horses on the Haitians trying to come across the border. These operations cost money to take a U-Haul of supplies down to the border. How much you think that costs? Even with the stores right next door, a couple of thousand dollars. And to organize, if we serious about organizing for reparations, we're going to have to talk about not only the economics, the economics of mobilizing the movement. Are we going to sit around and wait for some grants? Some people get them, but most of us won't get them. I don't see any foundation giving the new Black Panther Party no, two, no couple of million dollars. Huh. We would love to have it. It's going to have to come from a black uh, organization. But the brother is saying 
You know, what kind of what kind of economic fund will be put together to push this reparations movement? Those people in Houston who did that petition drive to get the 50,000 signatures to get the referendum, the referendum to take the red lights, uh, the cameras off the, off the lights in the city, they spent $50,000 on a three-month campaign and got all the signatures that they needed to overthrow a $26 million agreement that the city already had in, in place. We're going to need resources to make this happen. Definitely. Not just a bunch of conversations. But we appreciate the conversations because they're important. We talk about Black August, which is coming up. The elders told us that for the entire month of August, they met and came up with a plan. People don't want to even have the patience to sit in a room for eight hours and talk about reparations. But you go sit on a plantation and for the cracker, 40 hours off the week. <laughs> we talking about a few moments to bring our heads together and then come up with a plan. But we, we're going to do it, even if it's just take the, the few that we see here and uh, before us. There are many, and uh, you know, there are several more. Brother Jamoke, Black Power. Black Power. Um, <clears throat> yeah, actually, when I first raised my hand, I wanted to speak to something that Jay said, but now I wanted to add a little more to it. How you doing, brother? Peace, gang. Yeah, man. Uh, first of all, I just want to uh, do it. Just acknowledge that the Legacy Center, the Black House, is a phenomenal institution. It is uh, we got to come up with a better name than Black Miss Carlson, but it is all of that. And appreciate uh, you know it being an example of Black excellence. Um, what I wanted to talk to you about uh, was, was two things. Now, one is that you know. Um, the National African American Reparations Commission has created a, a separate entity to be a receiving agent for reparations funds. And also with the local reparations movement, there's been conversations around setting up independent autonomous economic funds to receive money and to distribute money because that way they would be not come under the control of the, uh, and have the necessary restrictions to go along with the city or county or state, um, you know, government guidelines. So that could be a, a real area where you could help the, in the reparations movement in terms of creating, um, you know, a fund like that either nationally and or and maybe you could have like branches locally. I don't know how that would work. Um, one thing. Um, the other thing is around this, the idea of, of the solution that you propose. I, I think it's a good idea. And I have a similar idea. I actually was inspired by something that um, Andrew Young did to bring people together and form a consensus on, on an idea. And he took it around to different regions of, of the United States and came up with a platform that was informed by a grassroots community as well as scholars and activists and, and different people. Um, well, one of the groups I thought that was also missing in your program was um, scholars. I think we need to have some of the, the you know, some, some, some people who have, you know, done research on different things need to be included in that list with the uh, entertainers and athletes and um, religious leaders. Um, and then just closing out on that on that whole note, I think that also what's really missing in terms of this idea of how do we organize the organizers and how do we um, come together with, you know, with coming up with a plan or ideas is that we need a institution to institutionalize that. Uh, I had been talking with Crystal and a few others that I think what we need is like a new African think tank 
which would could, which would be a place that would organize such convenings like that so we could come together on certain ideas and bring in some of the best minds to craft um, uh, you know but it would be something that's institutionalized so it would be difficult to just have a meeting like that you know and then you know you got to have a structure around it so um, that's something that I'm going to be talking to um, the people about how we how we create a, a think tank that could be used for not just for reparations or plebiscite but sustainable living for uh, other things, issues in, in that we need to address as well in the community. Um, repatriation, doing business with Africa, all of that um, could be um, informed by having a structure like a think tank. So uh, I, I, I don't know if you have any comments on that, but that was, that was what I want to say. And thanks again, Brother Jay, for the work that you've been doing. Yes, and I, I, I appreciate thank that. you, Jay. And I just got word for Baba Smiles. He needs 10 more minutes. So we do we do got a few minutes for him to respond to that. Go ahead, Brother Jay. Yeah, I appreciate that. That was great feedback. Um, it reminded me of something. So, so one, uh, yeah, this is right. I'm reading a book by a guy by the name of Ray Dalio. He's the um, owner of the largest hedge fund on earth, right? The largest hedge fund in the entire world. He is the owner. And in his book, he has this concept called being radically open-minded. That's what he uses in his organization. Is although he's the big boss, he's a CEO, he allows everyone's input, and he's radically open-minded to new ideas and challenging of his own ideas. And I think it's something that we also can adopt uh, as a community. I, I certainly adopt. So when I heard you say, uh, one, challenging the Ritz Carlton, uh, for sure, give me better examples. Always uh, down to better elaborate on our own excellence. Uh, but for the masses, you know, it works. Um, but when you also mentioned uh, the scholars, I think that's a great way to maybe better describe what I call social activists and political leaders. So maybe it's 25 political leaders and 25 scholars. Um, that kind of divvies up that that that, that wealth. But I understand there's a differentiator, a differentiator there, and scholars certainly should have their own kind of a category. But yeah, just a, this is just a thought of the so cooperative economics. We always talk about our actual money, but not the value in, in, in the uh, currency of our genius and our experiences. So collectively gathering our genius and experiences, think tank, if you will, allow us to do these kind of things. And I am familiar with the DAO, that, that, that DAO uh, type of uh, fundraising mechanism. I'm, I'm, I'm researching it now actually for another fund, but where it allows us to be able to raise through Blockchain is very simple. It's kind of quicker. It's more efficient. But honestly, I'm, I'm telling you all, um, the only thing that stopped us from raising 100 to $250 million was the fact that I didn't have enough allies when I launched. That's it. It was $11.5 million just off my face card and off my muscle. Um, with the United Front and those so it's easy to take a new guy like me and be like, well, what about him? I don't know about this. Let's try to vet him. Let's test him. Let's kick tires. Let's poke holes. But when you have a whole body of people with substantial resumes and bodies of work and, and all that, you have a collective body of work of all of our body of work, and say this united front is, is, is rolling out to raise $150, $200 million, or $50 million, or $20 million, or $10 million, whatever, for a reparations fight, that, that's very hard to – uh, combat because now you just can't tear down a reputation of one person or call or call scrutiny or 
uh, second guessing around one person, you got to do it around all. So um, I just think that's another valuable thing uh, into institutionalizing it and then how uh, a potential fund could be rolled out to support our movement. Um, the more collective it is, the better for sure. Well, brothers and sisters, Brother Jay, Brother Jay, if anybody wants to get involved and, su and support your work and efforts or to get involved as an investor or to learn uh, what you are, you know, you guys are working on or, or to get involved, how do they reach you? You know, what is the, the website? What's the best way? Yeah, sure. If it's anything around the fund-related uh, family, you could you could uh, reach me or see more at Tulsa T U L S A Real Estate Fund dot com. Um, I'm on all social media platforms: YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, the whole shebang. At Mr. J Morrison, that's J A Y. At Mr. J Morrison, you can see some of the work that we do here at the Legacy Center and within the community. Um, and if there's any way I can help financially empower. Uh, any of you all within your own households, uh, we have an amazing program called Credit to Cash Flow. Uh, you can learn more about. We offer private mentorship, et cetera, where we uh, help you use the bank's money, use the system's money to go buy your own financial freedom. Uh, and that's credit to cashflow.pro. Um, but, yeah, social media is the easiest way to find me and to connect. And I uh, thank you all for the time. Thank you, Sister Christopher. I'm honored to be invited to the prestigious body. And I look forward to hearing um, more what we got next. Black Power, thank you, Brother Jay. Thank you, Brother Jay. Yeah, Brothers family. and sisters, Brother uh, James Smalls asked us to give him just a moment or two more. What we can do right now at this time is to go ahead and uh, just remind everybody uh, that this video will be uploaded onto the New Black Panther Party channel um, uh, and in its entirety. We shouldn't have to do any editing at all whatsoever, as a matter of fact. Um, and what we are uh, at this point, if anybody has any commentary uh, that they would like for us to address, uh, we're going to go ahead and open up the mic. The brother asked us to just give him a few more minutes. Let's see, do we have any questions over here in the chat? We got any good comments in the chat, brother? Oh, we've had a lot of chatting going on. Yeah, so far uh, we have had, you know, nonstop back-to-back, back-to-back presentations. It's incredible how how Time has flown. It's already five o'clock. We've been there since nine o'clock. We only got four hours to go. All right, yeah. Thank you too, brother Eugene. So we we're waiting for brother James Smalls to jump on. Uh, let's see. We got some of the other comrades here representing the New Black Panther Party. I see some of you guys on. Uh, to to the other brothers and sisters in the chat. Uh, if anybody has any questions or comments, this is the time to get in before Baba Smalls gets on. After Baba Smalls, we'll have a presentation from Brother Larry with the San Larry Hayes with the San Cofa Group in New Orleans. We're going to hear from Brother Yafeo Balagoon, uh, representing the community movement and Guerrilla Mainframe. Brother Yusef Shabazz will be coming on. Brother War Williams, as well as Baba Amin and Sister Onjoko with the Uhuru Academy, and then we'll be closing out. We wanted to make sure that we had a very uh, strong uh, cross-sector of individuals to do presentations ranging from uh, – what? who's ready? No, I was saying he, he right. should be ready soon. Ranging from uh, people who are building institutions to people who are scholars to people who are community organizers, but this body um, – has brought on a lot of information tonight, a lot of information. Brother Smiles, where are you? 
I should have had some filler music or filler videos, uh, you know. You know, most of the time when we get individuals on uh, of this magnitude, I thought that the time uh, wouldn't be enough. So we didn't really, you know, create any filler, what do you call it, B-roll or anything to that effect. So let's see. Let's at least read some of these comments in the chat. And uh, comments of support, I could say. We had... One or two people tried to jump on anonymously, but we didn't allow them to come in. <laughs> yeah. uh, they didn't have any picture. They didn't put their name. And we didn't want anyone to be disruptive, so we didn't even bring those individuals into the build. But let me see here. What are some of the comments that are in the chat, brother? Read me out a good one. Okay, from um, brother. Oh, that's a sister. Daddy. Danera, Danera. Spell it. X A N A R I A. Okay, well, did y'all hear him? Speak a little louder, brother. Well, what's the comment? The comment says, through African Americans having been given the proper financial stability to progress from their white counterparts, do you think it is still possible for African Americans in urban communities to create a cleaner, healthier environment? If so, how? Anyone want to jump on that? Hold on one second. Let's some more people in here into the bill. So the question is again, what brother? Is the person that asked that question still on here? How do you spell the name? X A N A R I A. X A N A R I A. Are you still here? Um, well, huh, Brother James, I know you're ready. I mean, Larry Hayes, I know you're ready. I know you go behind Brother James. You're trying to keep on schedule. How long was your bill? Let me call him right quick. What do you, come on in, Brother uh, Larry Hayes. Let me call him and see if we can get you to fill in so he gets on if he needed a few more moments. Uh, let's see. Can you hear his Black Power? Yeah, Black Power. I'm here. I'm here. Okay, okay. What about your camera? Can you see me? No. Nope. Let me see. Uh, let me see. Let me see. Let me see. I'm yeah. in the dark. Yeah, that freestyle I did, that didn't work too good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we can... Oh, yeah, we can see you now. We can see you now, brother. I'm going to go ahead and take an, make an executive decision and have you go ahead and start so we don't have people waiting. Uh, Black okay. Power, your presentation. Uh, Black is 30 Power, minutes. like I said, you know, following a bad brother like uh, like uh, Doctor Smalls is hard. It's hard. So I want to uh, lead off for myself and uh, feel safe and content. Okay, okay. You got thirty minutes. Let me let the brother know. Go uh, ahead, Black Power. But Larry Hayes representing the San Kofa. Now, uh, I'm a, a a therapist that, that believes in uh, doing black therapy. I think that uh, we have to uh, change what we've been taught as black people. We've been uh, taught that it's wrong to take care of ourselves. We've been taught that we should always look out for others. We've been taught the same things that we've been trained as slaves uh, to, to do where we were always uh, motivated by fear and hope. And I'm saying we're still motivated by fear and hope. Everything that we do, we wake up in the morning hoping that 
uh, what we had the night before is still with us and fearful of losing the things that we want to hold on to. So the thing that I think we have to deal with is this. Is I think we have to uh, start looking at it from a perspective where I'm saying this now, and, and I would like to have persons uh, come in and ask questions as, as they wish. Uh, but I think that it's our... that most people are, are just uh, listening. So go ahead and with your bill, brother. You got 30 minutes. Black okay. Okay. Uh, I think that uh, by nature, we're selfish. Everything that we do, we do for ourselves. And I think that we do this because we are concerned about other people's perception of our perception of us. Our perception of other people's perception of us. And as, as we deal with that and deal with it from a functional perspective, we look at it from this perspective. We've been trained as black people are taught that uh, we don't care what other people say. I'm not saying everything that we do, we are concerned about what people say and think about us. We want, we want, person, you know, when we say that we are kind and we're doing stuff in the bottom of our heart, we want some type, some type of reciprocity. Everything that we do, we want, we want appreciation, approval, acceptance, and appreciation. And, we have to fraction in when we talk about the issue of uh, of uh, reparation. We have to deal with it from this respect. From this respect, today no one's good enough. We all want something in return for whatever. So when we deal with reparation, that means that we were enslaved for hundreds of years. We built America, made a number of persons wealthy, billionaires, because of the labor, free labor that we gave, and we were portrayed as Jezebels and Sapphires in the movies. Uh, the Jezebel meant that uh, when they would rape a black woman, that a black woman can't be raped because she was always hot and such. The, 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 uh, the other piece, when we talk about Sapphire, uh, it seems that they were always angry, that black women were always angry. They portrayed us as who we tend to accept and then start to, act as though they are, are right. We cannot identify with the aggressor, and the aggressor sure as hell can't identify with us. And I wanted to uh, deal with, with these issues. If we look at, uh, and I said there's three types of racism. Other people may say there are many more, uh, four, but I think there are three types of racism. racism. Individualized, institutionalized, and internalized. Individualized is a belief, a belief that uh, one person's race is less than or more than the others. Internalizes when we believe, definitely feel inferior to another race because that's what history has told. Uh, institutionalized, it was against the law for us to be treated as first-class citizens. We had our own everything, uh, our own water forces. We uh, paid in the front of the bus, got off the bus, and got one time to seat in the back. All type of things that humiliated and showed us that we were less than. Now, uh, when we think of these things, when we talk about self-esteem, think about being a second-class citizen where they could sentence you for 50 years in the penitentiary, but you had to go to the back door and not go to, uh, to be sentenced to go to jail. All type of things that made us feel inferior uh, lowered our self-esteem. We used to walk five, six blocks to pass up a school that you had to go to and pass five, six schools on the way to it. Now, when we talk about the the role of, of, say, a therapist in, in a black community. We have to help persons to regain 
uh, you know, there's a, a African word called Ori Ari. So we have to get persons to forget what they've been taught because what we've been taught has been definitely wrong or incorrect. We have to uh, have new information that's given to us that leads us forward. And if we are looking at our stuff from a different perspective, then we can see and do things much better as opposed to trying to, you know, we had those theories where we had to jump higher, move faster, think harder, be brighter, be more intelligent, blast the ones good, the white school. So we have to deal with from a perspective that our own importance, everything that we do, I say we do by ourselves. It's all right to be self. That's my theory, that it's all right to be self. And I could, uh, if anyone wants to debate it, I can't. Everything that we do, I'm repeating, everything that we do, we do for our own self. We do for our uh, for appreciation, approval, acceptance, and appreciation. Or affection. Now, I want to give uh, a brief definition of, re- of uh, reparation. Reparation, uh, the, the, the Emancipation Proclamation that supposedly freed the, uh, those who were enslaved uh, was signed in January of 1863, but we were not informed and uh, and told of it, so we kept on until the summer of 1865. And during the time, we were told that what would you all do if y'all leave the plantation? Is what we would do if we were free? That could be a question that could be asked right now. What would you, could we do? if we were free. There's so many things that binds our life, so many things that keeps us right where we are because we, and, I, and this is my theory, now, and y'all, like I said, I could discuss, uh, only four things, four things, uh, four ways that we can learn. We learn from curiosity, observation, mistakes, and experience. That's the only four ways that we can learn. Now, I can debate it with you if you want to. Now, if we look at it from that perspective, if we're curious, that means that what if I attempt to do this? You know, something new. Observation. We watch how others do things and benefit from it because we always have to learn. There's only four ways that we can learn. Then mistakes. If we deal with it from that perspective, we make a mistake. We can uh, learn from mistakes so we can know not to do this again because we uh, have our own experience and benefit from it. Our experience is this. That's how come we go to school. Go to school to learn from other people's experiences, from teachers who show us things that we don't. Now, the thing that I, that I think that's important is, is this. There's 181 black organizations that I feel helps to splinter us. 181 black organizations. Great to have. But if all of them had different missions and different goals, it helps to pull us apart. Now, if we could form a group that works for the same goals, same mission statement, then we could facilitate some change in our uh, in our neighborhoods. I, I don't think that we have we have the potential to be turn our uh, living quarters into communities. But uh, right now, I think we have neighborhoods. How many people know the persons who live next door to them? I live uh, a block or so from uh, from them. We tend to separate because we are, are fearful. And like I said, I think only two things motivate people: fear and hope. And the thing that I think that would, would Bring about some bring about some change in our uh, in our areas and within our people is this: if we redefine and look at this word currency, 
we tend to think currency is, is money. But currency means to be accepted, to engage. And if we able to accept each other and not be afraid that they'll take something from us that we want to keep or hope that they won't do us any harm, then change is coming. Because uh, the thing with our children, we talk about children going crazy. But the thing is, adults, they raise those children. And if we accept the children, I think children will accept us too. And we accept people for who they are as opposed to looking at change. Because the thing that is always factoring in is this. If, if you take uh, a group of people, throw them into uh, a hole and throw down, say, 50 people, and throw down food for 25, then you have a war going. And I think that's some of the things that we have to deal with when we talk about how come all the crime is generally in, in uh, black neighborhoods or the rest, because I don't think the crime is just in black neighborhoods, but the rest are being made in black neighborhoods because they stop black people all the time. All the time they stop black people because they're saying that if you stop black uh, persons, then you increase the possibility of making them. So the thing that I look at is, is this. If we deal with our importance and and also look at the impact that epigenetics has had upon us today, we have to deal with it from this perspective. That epigenetics means that we inherit through our DNA the same pain, suffering, and trauma that our ancestors went through uh, during slavery, Jim Crow, separate but equal segregation, all those things that help to you to dehumane us, to treat us less than human, and to tear up our self-esteem because we are, we are, there are laws that would arrest us if we attempted to go into the front door of a restaurant to give them our money. There were laws that said, well, we could sit on a bus. There were laws that said we couldn't go to certain schools because fear of them thinking that we'll attempt to uh, arrest or uh, deal with their, their girl children. So the thing we have to look at is just this. How do we feel about it? And, and we also have to look at this perspective. The impact of trauma. Trauma is pervasive. It results from exposure to incidents of, of serious events that have taken place emotionally or disturbed us in our life and threatened our life or the lives of others and helps us to function in a disoriented manner, help uh, physically and mentally, socially, emotionally, and spiritually as well, and keeps us in a state of anxiety. If we experience trauma, even if it goes to we are constantly in a state of uh, trauma. And if we look at it from that perspective, there are three types of trauma. Acute trauma resulting from a single incident. Chronic trauma is repeated and prolonged, such as domestic violence and uh, physical and emotional abuse that we experience on a daily basis. Complex trauma is exposure to, uh, to multiple traumatic events, often often evasive and interpersonal nature, where we could watch uh, someone of African descent being killed on national television. That in itself traumatizes us because we identify that could be me, that could be my brother, that could be my sister, my brother. So we have to deal with from that perspective that we suffer as a whole, as a whole people, because we go through things that other races and other people have never even dreamt of going through. 
Now, some symptoms of psychological trauma. Shock, denial, or difficulty concentrating, anger, irritability, mood swing, being fearful, guilty, shame, self-blame, feeling withdrawn from others, feeling sad or hopeless, feeling disconnected or numb. Think about uh, children who are in a neighborhood where they tell them uh, they're going to school and, and they have to, when they hear gunshots, gunshots, they uh, hit the floor. All type of things like that where that could traumatize the child for life. And there's a, a, a word that I, I use that, that I learned that it was, it was used for the, for the Jewish population in the 50s. Uh, it's called agnotology. Agnotology is the cultural study of this, the cultural study of induced ignorance used to manipulate, control, and govern persons in a way that they may not understand, but and just start taking on a, a sense of, uh, of, uh, of coping meaning that we start adjusting to the disorientation, the pain, the suffering that we are not accustomed to, but we start growing accustomed to it becomes part of our life. And if we constantly coping, that means that we're not looking for change. It means we're looking to just adjust ourselves to what our environment is all. I don't know if uh, Dr. Small is ready to come on or not. Yes, sir, I'm here. Yeah, I see you. I see you. <laughs> Sorry about the tardiness, really. That's okay. No uh, problem. Brother, no problem. But Larry, you got about five minutes, and then we'll bring uh no seven, seven minutes, and we'll bring Baba Smiles on. We ready? We ready for you, Baba Smiles? And we really, really appreciate the science you're dropping, Brother Larry. See you. Okay, now I want to say this: that there's only two ways that one could think. Only two. We can only think positive or negative, and in that process. As persons who have been traumatized, it's always a position where we're struggling with which way should we think because we so often have experienced uh, shame and blame. And if we deal with it from that perspective, we always hide something that we think we shouldn't share because although we've been taught that uh, we shouldn't care about what we think or say, we're always conscious of our perception of other people's perception of us, which affects our daily life, how we do things, what we do, and how we do. So I, um, I know I have a, a bad man who's uh, sitting and waiting. So I'm going to. Yeah, uh, I'm good, brother Larry. Me. I'm good. I'm learning. Okay, okay. So again, I want to reinforce that uh, one thing. There's four things that I think could change our neighborhoods, and what we should do as black people, if indeed we continue this fight that has been taking place since the early 1900s for reparation. Uh, we need hospitals in our communities, our own schools, not not the charter schools, which if you look at it into the word charter, it means co- colony. We need our own schools, we need supermarkets, and we need a place where we keep our money and get money out of that uh, we don't have to worry about. It. We could buy a car much more readily than we could a house or get loans to buy a car much more readily than a house. So I think it's really important that we collaborate, which means that we come together and our goals will be achieved in a much higher rate than if we constantly look at compromising ourselves, giving, giving up what we want for something we think we need. Uh, and, comp, you know, uh, tending 
to avoid the issues that constantly face us as black people. And the other is compromising ourselves, keeping the peace. And I, as, as uh, Fred Hampton always says, we must be revolutionists. We have to be revolutionists if we're going to affect change in our community and in the, in the whole diaspora. We have to be revolutionists. We can't just sit alone and go along with what's been happening. That's my seven minutes. Black power. Black power, Brother Larry Hayes, New Orleans represent. One of my great elders out of New Orleans. I had to, have had the benefit of, of of the folks in Houston and the folks in New Orleans. And uh coming 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 out coming out the gate. Ding ding ding. We ready to hear from our great Bible, James Smalls, coming in live, his resume, his pedigree. I heard one one guy, we was at a reparations uh, event at the other TSU at Tennessee University uh, one time, brother Bobby Smalls. Mm-hmm. And this guy this guy comes out and tells us he's about to give us his, his bonification. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, okay. But anyway, the, Bobby Smalls, I feel like we would need a whole 30 minutes to give you your yeah, introduction. You don't even need it. Let me just come in. Come on and, in, brothers. Yeah. Black power. Black power. Um. I'm just glad to be with the youth because it's your time. I mean, no matter how much we may think we are brilliant or we know, you know, we've done the best we can. And the next generation has to take it to the next level. And the one thing that we have to be clear about is when you're talking about fighting for anything, talking about fighting for freedom, fighting for identity, fighting for self-restoration, we have a whole continent in Africa that we have to fight for. We got something like 100 million Africans in Colombia going through the same hell we're going through here. We got nearly a half a big market. So we have to look at all of those things and analyze what are we doing? Like brother said, we need hospitals. We need our own banks. We need, we had all those things 50 years ago. We had all of those things. Every community I went to in the South, we had black hospitals, black doctors, because we were forced into that kind of apartheid situation, that kind of segregation. We have to figure out, just like the Chinese have done it and the Jews have done it and the Koreans have done it, if we're going to live in America, most of our people are not leaving America, and we're not going to overthrow America in an armed revolution, not in this generation. Now, we're going to wait for another generation to die out before we make sure they can survive and thrive. So we have to figure out how do we figure this thing out? How do we do the same thing others are doing? The Asiatic community in North America, the Indian community, the, the, the Jewish community, they're able to be who they are and still be in America. We are failing at that because we think it's an either-or thing. Either we join in totally, which is the mistake we made in the 60s with that integration business, with the white communities and their interests politically, economically, and culturally, or we have our separate black ones. We did that. didn't work. It worked for a while. It didn't work. We are the majority of the world's people. We have the majority of the world's wealth. In North America... We are the wealthiest African population in the world. 
Yes, they got more wealth in the ground in Nigeria and Ghana and South Africa, but they don't own it. White people still controlling all of that. We have the, the largest compilation of black wealth in the world as spending power in the African-American community. Let nobody fool you that that's not the case. That is the case. The government of the United States said we have 46 million. Then they say, but we miss close to one-third of you in our count. So we got to be well towards 80 million. And that's not counting the millions of uh, Spanish-speaking Africans, which they don't count with us. We're the only population where if you speak a different language, you have to leave the race in North America. So we have some things we need to discuss to make sense to ourselves. And we, to, we need to appraise and assess our own strengths. What are those strengths? How many businesses do we really own in America? That data is out there. How many of our young people are graduating from trade school, tech schools, colleges with nation-building skills? That data is out there. How many of our young people are coming out of high school not able to read and write efficient enough to go to a college? or get a job anywhere else. That data is out there. How many of our population is being felonized, put on parole and probation for the rest of their lives, making them non-functional citizens and forcing them into crime? That data is out there. We've got to get this information and look at it and make a clear analysis on which way forward. Malcolm X told us, Booker T. Washington told us, even the boys told us, Garvey told us. And there's no competition between Garvey and Booker. There wasn't even any real competition between the boys and, and, and Booker. We need to study all of those minds and say, okay, they were writing blueprints. What does the blueprints look like? How do we modify them, you know, to fit the time of now? What do we have to throw away? What do we have to retain? Okay, what are the new ideas we're getting from young people who are opposing the system's destruction of the African world in North America and the world? Because this isn't just happening to us in North America. Wherever the African is in the world, he's in a similar situation as we are in North America. The thing in North America, we represent the fourth African population in terms of size in the world, And we have an enormous wealth. Last year, $1.7 trillion we were able to spend. But unfortunately, because of our lack of knowledge of history, lack of consciousness, lack of commitment to self, lack of identity assurity, we spent that money with the Arab community, the Jewish community, the Chinese community, the Korean community, the Italian pizza community. We spent that $1.7 trillion with everybody except ourselves. And that is the only reason there's poverty in our community, because we cannot aggregate our riches and turn it into wealth. Dr. Carl Addison said, we need to aggregate the dollar that comes through our hands. Now, aggregate don't just mean controlling the dollar. You've got to control the mind. The mind doesn't get black because of wearing an Afro hairdo. The mind does not get black wearing some African clothing or waving the red, black, and green flag. The mind becomes black because you know your history. If you know your history, you have no question about identity. You know, 
and I think it was Dr. Asa Hilliard that told us that being shackled to your identity is the only true freedom because then you know what to do next and why. Malcolm X told us when they asked him, what does he mean by black nationalism? He said we must control the economics, the politics, and the culture where we live. That doesn't matter whether we're in Austin, Houston, Harlem, Chicago, wherever we live, because other people live all around us. We can't get rid of those other people. I don't even desire to do so. And I think it's a waste of time for anybody else to desire to do so. How do we take those blocks that we live in, how do we take that piece of geography with the acres upon acres of land and miles upon miles of land that we live in, and how do we control completely the economics, the politics, and culture that affect the lives of the people that live there? If we're not trying to do that, we're not fighting a revolution because revolution isn't about guns. Revolution isn't even about violence. Show me a successful revolution in the world where violence did anything. We fought in Mozambique. Look at the situation. We fought in Guinea-Bissau. Look at the situation. We fought in, in, in Angola. Look at the situation. The closest one to maintain integrity is Zimbabwe and Cuba. The rest of the armed revolutions have failed because they weren't clear on the purpose of the revolution. I don't want to restore power over anyone. We need to figure out how do we control the economics, the politics, and the culture where we live. And if you live in North America, operating as a socialist, you lose. Because this is not a socialist economy. And a few hundred people aren't going to make it such. We need to be real. We need to figure out how to take whatever this economic structure is that works for all these other groups and make it work for us. We did it at a point in history. The NFS, we weren't prepared because we weren't as strong as we are today. And they destroyed Tulsa. They destroyed Rosewood. They destroyed Wilmington and other places. Well, we got that history to study now. We got that history to look back at now. And we did a lot of the destroying ourselves. There were collaborators among us. There were people who were not committed to the group among us. We still have those same types of people. And there was a lot of the other negatives that don't allow a people to get control of the economic politics and culture where they live. And that's the key. If you can't control the economic politics and culture where you live, anybody's going to rule you. A handful of Arab guys walked into Harlem, what, 35, close to 40 years ago, opened one store on 147th Street and 7th Avenue, and they dominate the small store, so-called bodega market in Harlem today. I knew them. It was three brothers out of Yemen. Where were we? Why weren't we fighting to take control of who feed our people? A handful of Koreans walk into America and decided they were going to open dry cleaners. 
Yes, the white man helped them. Yes, they got loans and privileges, but we are squandering close to $2 trillion. We don't need no loan from anybody, except from ourselves. But we haven't brought our money together. We make our money and we move into the white suburbs. And we don't try to turn the black community into our suburb. That same money that made the white suburb can make a black community your dream suburb. Okay? So if you really want to understand where we must go with this, we must have some clarity on where it is we're going economically, politically, culturally. And those three things is essential. And then there's the spiritual aspect that governs the three. Because anybody's religion won't do. But we're not going to get rid of religion because 90% of our people is in it. So how do we manage that in trying to alter the consciousness and bring rebirth to the African consciousness in our community so they can understand that our primary objective is to provide food, clothing, shelter, safety, and security for ourselves and our people. If you're talking about anything else, you're just dreaming. You're playing. You must provide food, clothing, shelter, safety, and security for ourselves and our people. That means we've got to take control of economic, politics, and culture where we live, <laughs> which means we've got to get control of land, labor, and resources where we live. So any plan we have that don't include that, we don't have a plan. And then we have to capture some things. <clears throat> One of the things we must capture is our culture. You don't have a culture if it's controlled by somebody else. You don't have a culture if all the elements of your culture you must buy from someone else. Then it's not your culture. How do you get control of your culture? You can't think that history is a non-revolutionary task. History is one of the most revolutionary acts of anyone that is trying to be free. Because if you don't know history, you can't even define who your enemies are, let alone who your friends are going to be. But we don't put a lot of time in it. We put a lot of time in many of the organizations I've worked with over the years. We put a lot of time into talking about ideological strategy, but we're not talking about economic strategy. We're not talking about local political strategy. We're not talking about local educational strategy. Those things are overshadowed by a larger discussion about ideological strategies. We've got to discuss ideological strategies, but the fundamental reality, we've got millions of our young men tied up in a prison system called parole and probation. How do we get them free? We have more people being killed in our community any given year at the hands of other black people than was killed in any given year during slavery in America. How do we stop that? How do we deal with the most fundamental reality that exists when you walk out of your house door or your apartment door on a daily basis? All that problem that we meet there, how do we resolve it? Now, I'm not going to tell anybody, you don't have to vote for the Republicans and you don't have to vote for the Democrats. But in America, there's an electoral system that says the money that's taken out of your check as taxes every year 
and has returned to your community to be used for services of your people is going to be in the hands of those people who are elected politically. Now, either you elect the people you want or somebody else will elect the people who will use your revenue that you worked hard for for somebody else's best interest. And if you don't understand how politics work in America, don't tell me you're revolutionary because that, that's a myth. There's a way politics work anywhere in the world. Okay? And you cannot tell me you can control the community. If I'm talking to the brothers, like a conversation I had yesterday up in Watertown, and it's saying we don't want to be the pig, well, if you're not going to police your community, who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? The, the American flag-waving, Confederate flag-waving, Confederate flag psychotic that just came back from Iraq or Afghanistan, going to police your community? When you had the opportunity to police it and you refused to do it because you got a cliche that you're dealing with, there shouldn't be at least 75%, if not 100%, of the policemen in any African-American community should be African. And could be if we made a serious effort to do it. But you can't leave that to your enemy and then wonder why you're being abused. I tell young men, and a lot of people have got angry with me, and I know Sister Crystal probably put me up against the wall and slapped me upside the head. Every young black man should join the American military for two years. Learn some discipline, learn some control, because we have no facility outside of the nation and the party to do it. Learn how to use a weapon so you stop shooting down our women and children in the street because you can't aim a gun at a target that's two feet from you and calling yourself a gangster. You're a gang of foolish, disorganized minds. There's a lot you can learn. I served in the military, and I was in the movement throughout my service, and so was thousands and thousands of other black men. It didn't flip our minds anywhere. And I was in a group who we refused to fight in Vietnam, and we were in the military. And we did not fight. And some of us went to jail. I, too, had court-martials, and some was killed. My father fought in the military, but he became a socialist labor movement worker as soon as it put hit the ground. My brothers were in Korea, and they all came back and joined the civil rights movement in this country. So this myth that if you go in the military, somehow you're going to lose your mind, that's crazy. We need to learn the skills that we don't have in any way we can learn them, like other ethnic communities are doing. Look at the, the other immigrant communities coming in America. Well, uh, now, James Smalls. Yes, they, can join, they can join the new Black Panther Party. Oh, yes. We, I'm we teach military training. Because y'all are my two heroes. We teach so military you, training like you could learn in the military. Right, but we're not big enough. We got too many millions that need this in the next 10 years. We can get big and enough. They, can bring they them back and they come to the party and bring all that skill back to the party. Because most of us in the party in the 60s, we were in the military. We brought that skill back home. We didn't turn it against our people. You know, the new Black Panther Party and the Nation of Islam, those are my two heroes in terms of the groups that can transform, develop, add military concept, consciousness, and ideas. And we want that. But right now, this ship is going down this river, and we've got millions of people, and we've got to use every tool we can get. We need to take control of the police departments in our community. And you cannot take control of it by leaving it to other people to do and we've done that, and we should have taken control 
at the end of the 60s and throughout the 70s. The enemy came at us with a new idea, a new concept using music to sell us some backwards concepts and got us celebrating 50 years of going backwards. But I'm not going to even go there. But let's come to the key thing. Juneteenth, that didn't free anybody. But it's worthy of celebration because what black people did for themselves on that occasion. You know, when Granger came to Galveston, he had an order. Where is that? I wrote it down. He had an order, and it's called something. But anyway, what his order said was that y'all are now free. And the relationship between the slave owner and the enslaved African has changed to be one of employer and employee. And you form a slave owner will now become your employer. And they will even set your salary and the terms of your work arrangements. That's the same slavery system. So what did Granger do? And the order went further. It asked everybody to stay in place on the plantation you were on. Not to even go looking for your mother, your father, your wife, and your husband on other plantations. And if you were caught doing that, you would be arrested. You were asked not to gather around the military base because they would give you no protection. And then they came up with the vagrancy law. That if you were saw anywhere along the road in Texas and you couldn't show where you were working, you could be arrested and rented back out to the same slave plantation you were on. Now, that's what Granger's stuff said. But black people said something different. Most black people left those plantations. They said, the hell with you in your order and what it really says. And they built their little town, and they built their farms, and they began to make the arrangements of their freedom with themselves. They began to reinvent themselves as African people, you know, because someone had interfered with that development process, you know. And, we, and that's what's worthy of celebration because our people, nearly half a million of us fought in that civil war. We were wearing blue uniform, about 300,000 of them, but we weren't fighting for the blue uniform. We were fighting to free black people. Nearly 400,000 worked behind the lines as laborers, which freed up hundreds of thousands of more Union soldiers to go fight on the front line. Nobody talks about them. If you extract those Africans from the Civil War, the South wins the war and the North loses it. That was our war of liberation. But it wasn't completed in Galveston. That was a step in what this nation's legal apparatus said about slavery. The closest thing we came to ending slavery was the Civil Rights Movement and the Black Nationalist Movement in the 1960s. It wasn't just the Civil Rights Movement that produced the voter right bill or the Civil Rights Bill. The country was responding to all of the rest of what was going on in the country. Not just what was going on in five or six southern states. And they had to do something to appease that population. And so we're still not there. But the freedom we need now is in our own hands. How can we say we're a nation of people and we don't control a single police department in the country? Being a police commissioner or police chief don't, don't put you in control of the police department. To control that apartment, you got to be the numbers. you got to be the majority. And it got to have your ideas of what protection should be for your community. 
And we could do that, but we haven't done it. You fight in the environment you find yourself in. If I'm in the jungle, I fight one way. If I'm in the desert, I fight one way. If I'm in the water, I fight another way. Your environment determines what you have to do to get your freedom. And it doesn't mean you're minimizing your identity as a revolutionary. Study revolution. There have been many revolutions. Most of them have failed in the world, but there have been some very successful ones. The Haitian Revolution initially was very successful, and then it failed. It failed because they lost their identity. When they killed Dessaline and went back to the Catholic Church, and the mulattoes took the leadership and created a partnership with France and agreed to pay France for its loss of property, the revolution was aborted. All that great success that led up to that point. And so when we study history, let's be honest with ourselves about the mistakes that we made in history. Because we made a lot of mistakes. Even here in African America, we made a lot of mistakes. But we had a lot of victories. We don't even talk about our real victories. There's no population that came out of the genocide. Slavery was genocide. Let's make that clear. It was not a work program. We did not sign up for that. You know, that was indentured servitude. White people signed up for that, their form of slavery. Indian people signed up for that form of slavery. That you can enslave me for a certain period of time, then you give me some land and money, it'd be cool. We didn't sign up for that. Most of us were prisoners of war. We were captured in a brutal fight between the Arab Islamic world and the Western Christian world and greedy Africans from our own families. They were in the minority. I don't want to sit and somebody go say, oh, Brother Small said the African. No, that's your family. We got greedy people in our family selling drugs to us today. We got greedy people in our family robbing us today for the same reason some greedy ones participated in selling us years ago. But the overwhelming majority of African people had nothing to do with selling their kit and kin into slavery. Africans fought against slavery on the continent of Africa more fiercely if you study history than any group in the world. So history will let you be clear on how you identify yourself and how you strategize whatever the end strategy is going to be has to be determined what the most immediate and local strategy and, and, and has to be. And we can't continue where constantly we're burying more people every day in the black community dying at the hands of black people who have been crippled by white America than was dying in slavery and said we're achieving something. Because with all the achievements we have, we're not achieving anything if that's still occurring. You're not achieving anything if you spend $1.7 trillion. You're about to spend $2 trillion this year, and you spend it all with other ethnic groups that do not do any investment in the black community, do not even hire you to work in their facilities for the most part. What does Malcolm X mean when he says control the economic, the politics, and the culture where you live? When Dr. Gavi was creating the UNIA, and opening businesses and opening factories and trying to set up trade with Africa, what was he talking about? And can we do those things today? And how do we begin to proceed to get them established? Now, some people are doing this, but most people who are doing it are doing it as individual entrepreneurs. They're doing it as individual family corporations. That's not going to work when you have another group who's organized as tribes and ethnicity against you. You've got to be organized as a tribe and an ethnicity, too. 
if you're going to compete. That don't mean you stop fighting. That don't mean you disband your army. That don't mean you don't teach your people weaponry. We need to learn much more of those because most of us don't even know how to use a gun. Most of us have never pulled a trigger. Don't even know what it sounds when that crack go off. You know? So we need to learn all of those skills. We need to learn how to set up an intelligence apparatus, a real one, so we infiltrate all of their firms, all of their corporations, all of their paramilitary departments. Black men and women should join the FBI deliberately, but not on their own. They should be sent by black organizations who are revolutionary to learn the skills and technology necessary to protect the nation. Robert Smalls, you give me a heart attack over here. I don't want to give you a heart attack. I'm saying, no. how do you fight a war if they got the best? You know, it, it, it's just like this. I hear people, not even on the, on the join the military or the FBI or the police. I hear people since since I've been a teenager when they just want to get involved with politics. They say, I'm just going to be a city council. I'm going to learn all the information. I'm going to come back and no. bring it to you. They oh, never no. do. It can't be an individual. They never bring it back. I'm but I, that's a group I, have to send their people. I get it. I understand, but our people are not mature enough. They, I've never seen them bring it back, even when they're just going to go get a paid job as a politician, much less mm. trust them to go be police. Every time we do see black people as police, they, they have a psychological profile. I, I had a cousin, real talk, who was mm. two years older than me, grew up just like I did, regular black brother. He tried to go join the police. They wouldn't let him come in. He didn't fit the psychological profile. But I have another mm. uh, uncle who has a coon mentality, and they hurry up and bought him in, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, it's just, you know, I seriously, if we can put the energy and resources that we're talking about, we have land and we do training. We need to be send people to mbpp.org. You know, we can train, you know, but the, the U.S. military, I mean, it's just, I, I don't know. I, I, I get it's like if it's going to be. I understand. Stop, I get what you're saying, system. but. Is is uh, I'm having a conniptions over here. Most of the revolutionaries I know in the sixties, we served in the military, and we did not turn against our people. Many of those who spend the thirty and forty years in prison, they served in the military, and we brought that back home. We didn't give. I agree with you. You can't just say let people do this because they're not going to do it. They're going to come back the enemy. And we've seen that. I've been beaten more by black cops than I've been beaten by white cops in all the arrests I had. White cops kind of like with little. They want to kick you, but the brother want to kill you. Because you embarrass him. So I've been there. I understand that. I'm trying to figure out how to undermine them while we're fighting death. And that has to be, I'm not telling the population to do this. This has to be something for those of us to strategically talk about. How do we undermine a system while we're fighting that system? Because we live right here in that system. Because okay? it's winning the battle when it's getting the control of the majority of our young people's minds. We got to turn that around. Now, that may not be the best strategy. For me, I, like I said, economic politics and culture be controlled by us. How do we do that? How do we get control? We've got land all over the South and in much of the Northeast. We've got a lot of land that we don't use wisely. How do we get control of that land so that we can use that land to build the kinds of institutions we need? How do we take the wealth that we already make in one point something trillion and stare some of that wealth towards institution building, like the BPP, 
How do we build the Black Panther Party? What are kind of the institutions they need? What are the kind of school things they need? What are the kind of industry that can produce crop, produce food, and then have a supermarket at the end of that that we own also that can distribute that food? All of these are the things that we have to do in the economic stream. Because if we're not doing it every day, somebody else is doing it for us. Every day, every one of us walk up our house and shop with someone for food, clothing, and shelter. Every day. And 90% of those people do not look like us. And the few that do look like us do not invest with us, do not live among us. Now, how do we reckon with that? All of these we have to deal with, economic, politics, and culture. I'll leave the intelligence to the military thinking people. Y'all figure that one out. I'll stick to the economic, politics, and culture. How do we get control? We got land. I wish we had more, but we got plenty of land. I went to work with some brothers down in Coldwater, Mississippi. They have nearly a whole town. But what they don't have is the skilled people who are willing to go down and work on those farms. And what they didn't have, and they did expand, they had, remember the first year they grew a crop, most of it right in the field, because they had not set up marketplace. I think Memphis was the closest city to them, where they can go and, and sell that crop into the marketplace or find the capital so we can open a supermarket in Memphis where the crop could be sold to our people. But if we don't get control of the real estate and the wholesale in our community, we're not going to move forward because our people are giving all of our wealth that we need to build a nation to other nations every day. Okay. And our culture, our culture has been reduced to music that's controlled in terms of its distribution by the same white people that controlled distribution in the last generation. Whether it's hip-hop or whatever we call it, white folks is controlling it. They controlled it when Tupac was alive. That's why he's dead because he tried to get some of that control away from them. How do we get control of our culture? You know, and how do we have the, the wealth, the billions of dollars from that culture, at least some of that, return back into the black community? Because culture is how most people make their money. You sell your food, you sell your clothing style, you sell your music, you sell your theater, you sell your dance form. That's what you sell to the world. Except somebody else is selling our culture to the world. We are the performance, we are the dancers, but we don't control the marketplace. You know? And the politics, we come back to the politics. What are we going to do with the local politics? There's billions of dollars taken out of your pocket every day, come back in your community, and everybody gets to take a piece of it except us. Because we haven't figured out how to get control of it. Because that's the only way you're going to get past the charter school and build your own school. Because that's the money they're taking to build the charter school. That's your money. You work for it. Somebody took 40% of your paycheck from you, and we haven't figured a way to get some of that 40% back in our own industries in our community. And then there's the bigger fight for reparations, and they're going to fight us to the last tooth and nail in that. We'll probably win, I'm pretty sure. may not in my generation, which is now very short. But that's a major part of the fight. But in the meantime, we still have to eat. We still have to have food, shelter. We still have to have clothing. We still have to have safety. What are the institutional strategies to make sure we can have the kind of capital necessary that we can control that will contribute to the economic politics and culture in the daily lives of nearly 80 million people?
And they're not 80 million poor people. We're making the money. We have a poverty sector in our community, like every community has. We have people who are working poor, and we have people who are working class. Then we have people who are middle class and a little above that, and they're all making capital. Now, how do we somehow get enough energy in mind to have some of that capital turn towards institutional building in the black community? That, to me, seems to be what some of the strategies, and I'm sure that's what some of the strategies are. I'm not so interested in a Juneteenth, a celebration, holidays. We got 10,000 good holidays we want to celebrate, a revolutionary act we've committed in the last 400 years. But if there's any ideas to get from it, the idea is how our people say, listen, we're going to be independent of you. And they told Granger, we're going to be independent of you. And we're going to be independent of the plantation owners. Now, some states, well, many went away and built their own towns, their own communities, their own farms, and put their monies together to open their little credit unions and their banks, which grew over the next 100 years. You know, 100 years after slavery, we had 55 banks, 75 insurance companies, and thousands of schools. People who couldn't read or write produced that because of something in their mind about how they were recreating themselves as free people. Okay, we have to do the same thing. How do we constantly recreate ourselves based on the resources that are available to us? And it's not easy because you do have to thread. Because me, I don't want to support a police department that is a terrorist organization, and that's not what I'm talking about. I think we have people intelligent enough that they, they can disrupt us, we can disrupt them. And we did some of that in the past. It's not, that's not a historical myth, you know. But the big thing is controlling the economic politics and culture where you live. That's the key. If you can't do that, we're not going to go anywhere. And the strategy has to be how do we do that. So I hope that's not too far off of key. But no, I don't want no. this crystal to line me up against the wall. No, brother, brother, Paul, you, yeah. you already knew. You already knew. I think you already I knew. told you for you any day you because I know what kind of soldier you I are. Think, I think that was, a, I think that, I thought I was getting pranked. No, I would take orders. <laughs> no, I, I want people to be clear. I would take orders from this soldier any day. He can give me any order, and I would follow that order because I know who he is and the work he does. Bobby James, uh, I mean, you brought a lot of information, a lot of, you know, wealth, a lot of pro- pro- provocative conversation and thought. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that chat is going crazy right about now. <laughs> you brothers might lock me up. But let me say this. You know, we appreciate you coming on. You've been on our radio broadcast many times, you know. Uh, uh, brother, look, man, if you don't stop unmuting your mic. <laughs> I don't know how how does your how does your mic do that? It keeps unmuting. I don't know how, but um, let me go ahead and I'm trying to mute everybody because I want to be able to finish finish this build. How much we got a few more minutes? Mm-hmm. But you brought a lot of uh, interesting information. I, I also wanted to ask you to to build on. You know, you touched on it a little bit, but the the African spirituality part of this movement. You know, um, right. as it relates to reparations, as it relates to you know. 
dealing with one another, you know, even when we don't agree on something, where we can be able to communicate to the, to the point where we're respecting each other's, you know, thoughts, opinions, you know what I'm saying? Because when you were going, I was like, oh, okay, I got to properly, you know, me address to my brother <laughs> that I'm about to have a heart attack. <laughs> and, and you were right. I may have gone a little too far with that one, Sister Crystal. Right. But, but respect um, but, is respect, though, you know. So we got to be able to, you know, reach into ourselves and, you know, be able to properly communicate, like, you know, yeah. for real. Well, like spirituality to me is being in control of your reality. If you study any African system, they're talking about nature and cosmology. And how do we learn from nature? How do we interact with nature? How do we learn from the cosmology? How do we interact with cosmology? And most of the languages that I've seen, the word for God is everything. Every and all things at once is God. Not a man up there or a woman up there or a man or woman down here. And they didn't have no little gods. Orishas were never meant to be gods. Loas were never meant to be gods. We've added our English translation. Netters were never meant to be gods. Those were quality and attributes in nature that the Africans saw we could learn from nature and develop those qualities and attributes in ourselves and then partner ourselves with nature so that we know what's the best food to eat, you know, when time of the year to eat. You don't eat the same food year-round. You don't need the same vegetables year-round. There's all kinds of rules that we learn in the study of the relationship to nature. So we didn't have a separate thing called religion, and then we had our life. Our whole life involved that process we call spirituality. Our culture was the tool that taught and reminded us of that thing we call spirituality and its necessity for being in our life every day. And so we put it in our music, we put it in our dance, we put it in our drum rhythm, but all of it was telling the same story. You know, drums, because I have, I had it, but I no longer have an affibulation where you have or your heart is beating a little too rapid sometimes, and if you don't get control of it, you're out of here. And I learned to get rid of it by changing the rhythm of my body, by getting rid of the stress in my head, because the stress in my head was affecting the, the rhythm of my heart. I had to resolve the contradictions that produced the stress, right? And that reduced the, 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 the retention of that stress and the rhythm of the heart. And I got rid of my fibrillation. That, if you go back and study ancient Africa, they used to do that with drums. That's called the healing drums. Every organ in the human body beats at a certain pulsation. But sometimes injury or sickness could throw that pulsation off. And so what a priest or priestess would do is get you in an environment where they can use the drum to re-instruct your organ to assume its normal, healthy, rhythmic patterns again. And, but that wasn't a separate thing from your daily life. That was a part of life itself. So what we call spirituality is being aware of, fully conscious of, and fully engaged in your reality. You know? You didn't separate the two, like real, our daily life is here and spirituality is there and religion is here. Africans had no religion. What we've done is called methodology and rituals and initiations, which are all tools 
of informing and educating a population or determining when the population is ready to move to the next level of responsibility, we call those rules religion. The Africans never call them religion. It was just their daily lives. You know, it was necessity. They were responding to necessity on every level. And so that's what I understand to be spirituality. Not something separate from me. And I understand what we call God to be every and all thing, and I'm just an aspect of the every and all thing. The tree is an aspect of the every and all thing. The wind is an aspect, the water is an aspect. Together we make up God. Not God, there we here. That's not an African way. Together we make up the thing we call the divine. Each of us represent an aspect of it. That's the essence of African spirituality, as I was taught. And that informs your revolutionary behavior because when we see tyranny and we see oppression and something that sparks inside of you, I've got to fight against that tyranny and that oppression. What's going to inform you of how to carry on that fight? That thing that informs you that tyranny is wrong, that oppression is wrong, that abuse is wrong. That's what you call your spiritual sense. That's your spiritual understanding. Because nature says there should be harmony, balance, and reciprocity. And if in the artificial political environment, that harmony, balance, and reciprocity is not there, you should be informed that you need to fight against that. You know? And so if we were clear on African spirituality and how it instructs and informs our consciousness, we would all know that we must be revolutionaries to the day we die. That would, that's the only responsible task that you could possibly have. Anything else, you will be in opposition to nature itself. You know, I think Dr. Noble called that a mimetic infection, European cultural infection of the African mind. And so I tend to say in each of us, there have been, because of the oppression and the religion of the Western world, We've constructed uh, a white man that we have confused to be a black man. And when a real black consciousness started to come in, that white man in you, disguised as a black man, fight against the real African consciousness from absorbing your mind. The way you get rid of that is to study history. Get rid of the mystery. Study history. Learn your cultural system. Learn your spiritual system. Learn your sacred science. And you will learn that you don't need no priests. You don't need no preachers. Because in our society, the people we call them priests and priestesses now, we didn't have them in ancient times. They were basically scientists. They were practitioners. They were healers. They were people of all kinds of power. They were astronomers, astrologers. They were the ones specializing in the science so they could teach it to the masses. But they weren't priests or priestesses. And we have imposed this white structure over the African system, and that's why we can't really learn from the African system. That's why it won't grow over here. We've smothered it with the European hood, so to speak. Yes, sir. Wow, man. What a strong, powerful build. Brother James Smalls, we have uh, how many more minutes? Five. Five more minutes. We got plenty of time to go ahead and get ready to, I guess, build on this Juneteenth celebration. 
this movement for reparations, you know, these are very two both of those topics in in and of themselves are heavy topics to build on. And we've been on this uh Zoom since nine AM wow. this morning. And it's been nonstop build and what's the consistent thing that's come up amongst all the bills has been our collective our collective work, but also, you know, the call for strategy. What are our next uh strategy points, you know, as it relates to reparations. And we are gonna on August nineteenth have a reconvening and we're asking folks to come to the table with key strategy points that we can, you know, start moving towards. So that will be the last uh question I, I ask of you, you know, as to you know, what your opinion as to next steps strategy wise regards to the reparations movement, black power. Black power. I think the reparations movement, you know, there's so many fragments and pieces going on at one time in the country. We may try to see how much of this we can pull together. People willing to sit down with their different strategies, different ideas and concepts. Some probably won't, but they may, the more that we can get to sit down and say, hey, like, let's come up with a common strategy here. So like, what just happened in New York, right? They passed the reparations, so like we're going to ask some question bill. And a lot of our elected officials went with that. But the bill that the brothers and sisters, the D12 and others, had advanced forward, that bill didn't get considered. They created their own reparation bill. Oh, you saying the, 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 the politicians? The State, yes, okay. the New York State Assembly. And mm. so we have to learn to tell our people that's not what we mean. When they woke up the next morning and said, we passed the reparation bill, we said, no, you didn't pass the reparation bill. You passed an inquiry bill so you can stall for more time bill. We gave you a set of demands that we wanted to be met. And we gave you a historical analysis explaining why those demands should be met. And we brought to the table a certain amount of evidence about the crime against humanity that you committed over a 400-year period. And we want a response to that. That's not what they passed. And that's the same thing that happened in the Congress. Remember, the same thing happened there. They said, oh, we're going to look at the issue. We didn't ask you to look at the issue. We've been looking at the damn issue for 400 years. Mm-hmm. We've given you, and, and I think that's what our strategy needs to go towards. Let's come up to what we want from any government agency and try to have as much common cause with that, those demands, as possible. That's what I brought up earlier, and I keep bringing it up. You know, I gave an example in Houston, there was a, a the city of Houston and the mayor signed an agreement a few years back. It was like 20, 2010 or something like that to put red light cameras all over the city. Well, a group of people got together and they they started. They, this this had already passed. They passed this as an ordinance, and the city mm-hmm. had cut a twenty six million dollar deal with the contractors that were going to put the cameras up everywhere. Well, this group got together and started petitioning the 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 vote the registered voters. They needed to get fifty thousand. Registered voters because Houston has a twenty or two million two million population, so they needed fifty thousand signatures to put on a ballot a, a referendum to take to knock down the city uh, and the mayor's uh, ordinance for these cameras. And you know what? The referendum won, and it outweighed the city's. Wow. But the, with the, because the referendum has the highest precedent in the, I guess the way the the law goes. And so, you know, that's the strategy I think that we should try because if we leave it up to these hand-picked politicians and all of that, but one thing we were, I was proposing and that we we were we will be bringing in August 
is that we come together and come up with a, a unified strategy point that we could all duplicate per city and then yeah. plug in it, you know. But we need to start thinking in these organized ways. You know, we're looking at what's happening in California. You just, that's breaking news what you just told us about what happened in New York. You know, mm-hmm. we need to see what the strategies that the enemy is doing, you know, what points we can agree on and move on. it. You know, California said 1.5 million and, and, and the other people said 5 million. You know, that was another discussion we were told and there was a lot of workers about the NAACP going against the, the, the groups that wanted the 5 million in mm-hmm. some kind of way they settled the 1.5 million. We need to look at what these opposition things are, are, are happening and what are some of the common things that we can run with. You know, we can see what the enemy is going to do. They're going to send out the handkerchief heads to do this, or they're going to try to pass a watered-down thing here, and then we can come up with a unified focal point that we could have everyone running with. I think that would be powerful. And, uh, of course, like the other <laughs> comrades said before that, is that um, – Brother Jay Morrison, about up, who came up before you, he said it was so difficult getting the people in the movement to just agree on one thing like that. So right. he had to just yeah. go and do it on on his own and show show you know show them. So. And, and that's Crystal, the hard. Can I um? Just one second, brother. Step uh, step away. We'll go to okay. James Smalls and come back yeah. to you. Go ahead, brother James. This will be my last word, brother. It was just that we need to make that effort to tell the different elements of the movement. Let's sit down, because if we, you know, the thing that made this, the civil rights movement in the South so effective under Dr. King's leadership, because even though we know they had a lot of disagreements about them, but they came up with certain common strategies that even those who didn't like it said, okay, we're going to go along with this strategy because the majority says this is the best way forward. And it worked, you know, for that time period, for the goals they had, you know, to get registered to vote to be able to go to a ballot without having to pay the poll tax. Those things now we take for granted, but that's what they were fighting, and they came up with a strategy. And that's what made them successful, because they did have a common strategy. If we can get a close to a common strategy on where to move with the reparation movement, we could win much faster than any people think we can. That's right. That's right. That's right. I agree. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We're going to come together on common ground. You know, we're going to come together on common strategy. We're going to get involved with people. Now, we have my brother. This is probably my cousin. I don't know because <laughs> I did my DNA. Uh, I, I called you, Baba Smalls, when my DNA came back. Yes, and, you and did. And it said I, my people were from Guinea-Bissau. Mm-hmm. And I was just studying everything, Guinea, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Guinea-Bissau. But uh, a couple of days ago, Brother Luke Mon out of the Republic of Africa was telling me about this brother step away. And he was like, you got to get him on the show. And I talked to him uh, Saturday and found out he was in Guinea Bissau and then with the balance. I'm like, man, that's 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 what they say. I'm like, I, my bloodline uh, comes from. So the brother did a very powerful piece earlier this morning on the international tip. And uh, he kind of looked like my people, too. The little dark eyes with the deep rings. <laughs> Who knows? You know, that's the part of reparations. You know, we've been scattered all over the place, but uh, I recognize you as my spiritual kin, kin if not anything else. Uh, Brother Sepway, your question? Brother Luke Martin, yes. come on, Brother um, Luke Martin, let everybody else talk. I know you're ready to get in there, Brother Luke Martin. Go ahead, Brother Sepway. Uh, Bob Smalls, I would um, like to get your thoughts on uh, 
a particular strategy that um, is being developed. You may know that three weeks ago, the Illinois Legis uh, um, House of Representatives passed HR 292, which calls on the state of Illinois to provide African ancestry matrilineal and patrilineal DNA testing for uh, every black resident of the state of Illinois and to prioritize um, voluntary repatriation uh, and citizenship for those that want it. Um, in 2003, African ancestry uh, emerged and provided us with a new tool and or a new weapon that allowed us to find out exactly who we come from so we could make that reconnection with our history prior to the slave ship and not just a general history of Africa, but the actual um, culture, spirituality, language um, that our ancestors who served, you know, literally the ancestor in each one of our families that survived the Middle Passage, either your direct paternal ancestor or maternal ancestor, um, because of this tool, it is now possible to make great advancement in recovering from ethnocide and it also opens up new legal strategies. I just wanted to get your thoughts on the role and the significance um, of the African Ancestry DNA test uh, and its role in um, our reparations movement today. Well, I use African Ancestry DNA for my test and um, on, on my mitochondria would go back to the Mendy and, and Sierra Leone. And on my father's side, we go to East Africa, to what is now Uganda, that area, general area. Um, but the, the Maya country was most specific. And I believe that we um, could and should use DNA in the maximum way we could do it. I don't know how well to trust the Chicago government. We must put some checks and balances in there so that we don't get misused and played out of pocket again, you know. Um, but I think we we should be able to bring the case even more stronger for reparations if we can cite the very location and the family that was damaged and harmed by this crime against humanity. And we know that the Orisha Accords in South Africa 20 years ago, the transatlantic slave trade was declared to be a crime against humanity. And that's the world legalism as we got it. So, and America knows this, but she's been trying to duck and hide from, you know, America was one of the last people to sign the Human Rights Accord of the UN, and they only did that a few years ago, you know. So we need to have every bit of evidence available to bring to the legal table when it comes to reparations. And I worked in Chicago for years with Dorothy Tillman on the reparations project. And what we did, we just did investigation. And things like, for instance, uh, Citibank says, oh, we had nothing to do with reparations. We just came into being, yada, yada, yada. And we were able to prove that, no, you had a parent bank called Canal Bank that was in New Orleans, and your largest commodity was African bodies. All right? So the foundation money for Citibank came from selling African people in slavery. So you're liable. We will do the same kind of thing with Chase and other companies. 
And that kind of research we need young people to do. It's difficult but not difficult because one thing these fools do to account for every penny, they keep records. And we can get access to most of those records today to make our case. We're the only people who should get reparations without making a case because the crime against us was so historically obvious. You know, in Germany, the thing that Hitler did was about a 10-year period of time. How do you commit this kind of crime for 240 years as the United States and Britain did here? Generation after generation. You, there's no way you can say, oops, we made a mistake. We didn't mean to do that. No. This is one of the most deliberate crime against humanity in the history of the world, the enslavement of African people. That so we have one of the best cases in the world. And if they want to play court, the evidence is all there, all over the world, all over Africa, all over North Central South America. But we have to make sure we have, like come back to what Sister Christopher says, the strategy that we go forward with must be as common as possible between the groups that's pushing the thrust forward for reparation. That's going to be the key to our victory and the length of time it takes to assume that victory, the strategy that we come up with when we bring the charges, when we push to have them cut the check. Sir, yes, sir, Black Power. Black Power, that's right. Well, we want to thank you, Baba James Small, and all of the questions from the audience. Thank you for my other panelists. Uh, do you have any closing words, brother? Well, it's freedom or death. Um, we have no choice. Um, yesterday I was up in Watertown, New York, and I couldn't call you because it's a military base up there, two big military bases. This is a town in northern New York near Canada. It's like being in any parts of Mississippi. All you see is Confederate flags, you know, <laughs> pick up trucks, driving dudes. And I go like, I'm in New York State. I, I've never been up there, right, that far north. And I gave a speech on Juneteenth that somebody didn't like. When I walk out of my speech, my phone started asking me for a password. I had never used a password ever. For and a few phone. hours later, my phone had been wiped clean of everything, every contact. It was like I just got it from the factory. I couldn't even call my wife because you know, I, I forgot. <laughs> so I finally realized I could get online and reach a friend, Brother Charles, who I always leave my backup family numbers with on WhatsApp, and I was able to call home and said, I'm having a problem up here. I can't contact anybody. My phone was just wiped clean. So I know they got the capability. I know I got hacked. Whatever I said politically, someone didn't like. And within a few minutes of that lecture, that happened. So we know we had war, and we have to act like we had war, because a lot of that's the other weakness we have is to act like we are not at war. We are at war. It's a war we did not start, but we are at war, and we are in the midst of that war, and we need to conduct ourselves like people who are at war conduct themselves. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.